chapter one of the theory of psychoanalysis by carl gustav jung this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one consideration of early hypotheses it is not an easy task to speak about psychoanalysis in these days i am not thinking when i say this of the fact that psychoanalysis in general it is my earnest conviction is among the most difficult scientific problems of the day but even when we put this cardinal fact aside we find many serious difficulties which interfere with the clear interpretation of the matter i am not capable of giving you a complete doctrine elaborated both from the theoretical and the empirical standpoint psychoanalysis has not yet reached such a point of development although a great amount of labour has been expended upon it neither can i give you a description of its growth abowo for you already have in your country with its great regard for all the progress of civilization a considerable literature on the subject this literature has already spread a general knowledge of psychoanalysis among those who have a scientific interest in it you have had the opportunity of listening to freud the real explorer and founder of this method who has spoken in your own country about this theory as for myself i have already had the honour of speaking about this work in america i have discussed the experimental foundation of the theory of complexes and the application of psychoanalysis to pedagogy it can be easily understood that under these circumstances i fear to repeat what has already been said or published in many scientific journals in this country a further difficulty lies in the fact that in very many quarters there are already prevailing quite extraordinary conceptions of our theory conceptions which are often absolutely wrong and unfortunately wrong just in that which touches the very essence of psychoanalysis at times it seems nearly impossible to grasp even the meaning of these errors and i am constantly astonished to find any one with a scientific education ever arriving at ideas so divorced from all foundations in fact obviously it would be of no importance to cite examples of these curiosities and it will be more valuable to discuss here those questions and problems of psychoanalysis which really might provoke misunderstanding a change in the theory of psychoanalysis although it has very often been repeated it seems to be still an unknown fact to many people that in these last years the theory of psychoanalysis has changed considerably those for instance who have only read the first book studies in hysteria by brewer and freud still believe that psychoanalysis essentially consists in the doctrine that hysteria as well as other neuroses has its roots in the so-called traumata or shocks of earliest childhood they continue to condemn this theory and have no idea that it is fifteen years since this conception was abandoned and replaced by a totally different one this change is of such great importance in the whole development of psychoanalysis as well for its technique as for its theory that i must give it in some detail that i may not weary you with the complete recitation of cases already well known i will only just refer to those in brewer and freud's book which i shall assume are known to you for the book has been translated into english 
you will there have read that case of brewers to which freud referred in his lectures at clark university you will have found that the hysterical symptom has not some unknown organic source but is based on certain highly emotional psychic events so-called injuries of the heart traumata or shocks i think that nowadays every careful observer of hysteria will acknowledge from his own experience that at the root of this disease such painful events are to be found this truth was already known to the physicians of former days the traumatic theory so far as i know it was really charcot who probably under the influence of page's theory of nervous shock made this observation of theoretical value charcot knew by means of hypnotism at that time not understood that hysterical symptoms could be called forth by suggestion as well as made to disappear through suggestion charcot believed that he saw something like this in those cases of hysteria caused by accident cases which became more and more frequent the shock can be compared with hypnosis in charcot's sense the emotion provoked by the shock causes a momentary complete paralysis of will-power during which the remembrance of the trauma can be fixed as an auto-suggestion this conception gives us the original theory of psychoanalysis etiological investigation had to prove whether this mechanism or a similar one was also to be found in those cases of hysteria which could not be called traumatic this lack of knowledge of the etiology of hysteria was supplied by the discovery of brewer and freud they proved that even in those ordinary cases of hysteria which cannot be said to be caused by shock the same trauma element was to be found and seemed to have an etiological value it is natural that freud a pupil of charcot was inclined to suppose that this discovery in itself confirmed the ideas of charcot accordingly the theory elaborated out of the experience of that period mainly by freud received the imprint of a traumatic etiology the name of trauma theory is therefore justified nevertheless this theory had also a new aspect i am not here speaking of the truly admirable profoundness and precision of freud's analysis of symptoms but of the relinquishing of the conception of auto-suggestion which was the dynamic force in the original theory and its substitution by a detailed exposure of the psychological and psychophysical effects caused by the shock the shock the trauma provokes a certain excitation which under normal circumstances finds a natural outlet in hysteria it is only to a certain extent that the excitation does find a natural outlet a partial retention takes place the so-called blocking of the effect affectine clemung this amount of excitation which can be compared with an amount of potential energy is transmuted by the mechanism of conversion into physical symptoms the cathartic method according to this conception therapy had to find the means 
by which those retained emotions could be brought to a mode of expression thereby setting free from the symptoms that amount of repressed and converted feeling hence this was called the cleansing or cathartic method its aim was to discharge the blocked emotions from this it follows that analysis was then more or less closely concerned with the symptoms that is to say the symptoms were analyzed the work of analysis began with the symptoms a method abandoned to-day the cathartic method and the theory on which it is based are as you know accepted by other colleagues so far as they are interested at all in psychoanalysis and you will find some appreciation and quotation of the theory as well as of the method in several textbooks the traumatic theory criticized although as a matter of fact the discovery of brewer and freud is certainly true as can easily be proved by every case of hysteria several objections can be raised to the theory it must be acknowledged that their method shows with wonderful clearness the connection between the actual symptoms and the shock as well as the psychological consequences which necessarily follow from the traumatic event but nevertheless a doubt arises as to the etiological significance of the so-called trauma or shock it is extremely difficult for any critical observer of hysteria to admit that a neurosis with all its complications can be based on events in the past as it were on one emotional experience long past it is more or less fashionable at present to consider all abnormal psychic conditions and so far as they are of exogenic growth as the consequences of hereditary degeneration and not as essentially influenced by the psychology of the patient and the environment this conception is too narrow and not justified by the facts to use an analogy we know perfectly well how to find the right middle course in dealing with the etiology of tuberculosis there are of course cases of tuberculosis where in earliest childhood the germ of the disease falls upon a soil predisposed by heredity so that even in the most favourable conditions the patient cannot escape his fate none the less there are also cases where under favourable conditions illness can be prevented despite a predisposition to the disease nor must we forget that there are still other cases without hereditary disposition or individual inclination and in spite of this fatal infection occurs all this holds equally true of the neuroses where matters are not essentially different in their method of procedure than they are in general pathology neither a theory in which the predisposition is all-important nor one in which the influence of the environment is all-important will ever suffice it is true the shock theory can be said to give predominance to the predisposition even insisting that some past trauma is the condition sine qua non of the neurosis yet freud's ingenious empiricism presented even in the studies in hysteria some views insufficiently exploited at the time which contained the elements of a theory that perhaps more accentuates the value of environment than inherited or traumatic predisposition the conception of repression 
freud synthesized these observations in a form that was to extend far beyond the limits of the shock theory this conception is the hypothesis of repression verdrangung as you know by the word repression is understood the psychic mechanism of the retransportation of a conscious thought into the unconscious sphere we call this sphere the unconscious and define it as the psyche of which we are not conscious the conception of repression was derived from the numerous observations made upon neurotic patients who seem to have the capacity of forgetting important events or thoughts and this to such an extent that one might easily believe nothing had ever happened these observations can be constantly made by any one who comes into close psychological relations with his patients as a result of the brewer and freud studies it was found that a very special method was needed to call again into consciousness those traumatic events long since forgotten i wish to call attention to this fact since it is decidedly astonishing for a priori we are not inclined to believe that valuable things can ever be forgotten for this reason several critics object that the reminiscences which have been called into consciousness by certain hypnotic processes are only suggested ones and do not correspond with reality even granting this it would certainly not be justifiable to regard this in itself as a condemnation of repression since there are and have been not a few cases where the fact of repressed reminiscences can be proved by objective demonstration even if we exclude this kind of proof it is possible to test the phenomena by experiment the association tests provide us with the necessary experiences here we find the extraordinary fact that associations pertaining to complexes saturated with emotion emerge with much greater difficulty into consciousness and are much more easily forgotten as my experiments on this subject were never re-examined the conclusions were never adopted until just lately when wilhelm peters a disciple of kraepelin proved in general my previous observation namely that painful events are very rarely correctly reproduced the unlustbetonten erleb nisa werden am seltensten reitig reproduciert as you see the conception rests upon a firm empirical basis there is still another side of the question worth looking at we might ask if the repression has its root in a conscious determination of the individual or do the reminiscences disappear rather passively without conscious knowledge on the part of the patient in freud's works you will find a series of excellent proofs of the existence of a conscious tendency to repress what is painful every psychoanalyst will know more than a dozen cases showing clearly in their history one particular moment at least in which the patient knows more or less clearly that he will not allow himself to think of the repressed reminiscences a patient once gave this significant answer je l'ai mis de cote i have put it aside but on the other hand we must not forget that there are a number of cases where it is impossible for us to show even with the most careful examination 
the slightest trace of conscious repression in these cases it seems as if the mechanism of repression were much more in the nature of a passive disappearance or even as if the impressions were dragged beneath the surface by some force operating from below from the first class of cases we get the impression of complete mental development accompanied by a kind of cowardice in regard to their own feelings but among the second class of cases you may find patients showing a more serious retardation of development the mechanism of repression seems here to be much more an automatic one this difference is closely connected with the question i mentioned before that is the question of the relative importance of predisposition and environment the first class of cases appears to be mainly influenced by environment and education in the other predisposition seems to play the chief part it is pretty clear where treatment will have more effect as i have already said the conception of repression contains an element which is in intrinsic contradiction with the shock theory we find for instance in the case of miss lucy r described by freud that the essential etiological moment is not to be found in the traumatic scenes but in the insufficient readiness of the patient to set store upon the convictions passing through her mind but if we think of the later views we find in the selected papers on hysteria where freud forced through further experience supposes certain traumatic sexual events in early childhood to be the source of the neurosis then we get the impression of an incongruity between the conception of repression and that of shock the conception of repression contains the elements of an etiological theory of environment while the conception of shock is a theory of predisposition but at first the theory of neurosis developed along the lines of the trauma conception pursuing freud's later investigations we see him coming to the conclusion that no such positive value can be ascribed to the traumatic events of later life as their effects could only be conceivable if the particular predisposition of the patient were taken into account evidently the enigma was to be resolved just at this point as the analytical work progressed the roots of hysterical symptoms were found in childhood they reached back from the present far into the past the further end of the chain threatened to get lost in the mists of early childhood but it was just there that reminiscences appeared of certain scenes where sexual activities had been manifested in an active or passive way and these were unmistakably connected with the events which provoked the neurosis for further details of these events you must consult the works of freud as well as the numerous analyses which have already been published the theory of sexual trauma in childhood hence arose the theory of sexual trauma in childhood which provoked bitter opposition not from theoretical objections against the shock theory in general but against the element of sexuality in particular in the first place the idea that children might be sexual and that sexual thoughts might play any part with them 
aroused great antagonism in the second place the possibility that hysteria had a sexual basis was most unwelcome for the sterile position that hysteria was either a reflex neurosis of the uterus or arose from lack of sexual satisfaction had just been given up naturally therefore the real value of freud's observations was disputed if critics had limited themselves to that question and had not adorned their opposition with moral indignation a calm discussion would have been possible in germany for instance this method of attack made it impossible to get any credit for freud's theory as soon as the question of sexuality was touched general resistance as well as haughty contempt were awakened but in truth there was but one question and issue were freud's observations true or not that alone could be of importance to a really scientific mind it is possible that these observations do not seem very probable at first sight but it is unjustifiable to condemn them a priori as false wherever really sincere and thorough investigations have been carried out it has been possible to corroborate his observations the fact of a psychological chain of consequences has been absolutely confirmed although freud's original conception that real traumatic scenes were always to be found has not been theory of sexual trauma abandoned freud himself abandoned his first presentation of the shock theory after further and more thorough investigation he could no longer retain his original view as to the reality of the sexual shock excessive sexuality sexual abuse of children or very early sexual activity in childhood were later on seen to be of secondary importance you will perhaps be inclined to share the suspicion of the critics that the results derived from analytic researches were based on suggestion there might be some justification for this view if these assertions had been published broadcast by some charlatan or ill-qualified person but any one who has carefully read freud's works and has himself similarly sought to penetrate into the psychology of his patients will know that it is unjust to attribute to an intellect like freud's the crude mistakes of a journeyman such suggestions only redound to the discredit of those who make them ever since then patients have been examined by every possible means from which suggestion could be absolutely excluded and still the associations described by freud have been proved to be true in principle we are thus obliged in the first place to regard many of these shocks of early childhood as phantoms while other traumata have objective reality with this knowledge at first somewhat confusing the etiological importance of the sexual trauma in childhood declines as it seems now quite irrelevant whether the trauma really took place or not experience teaches us that fantasy can be so to speak of the same traumatic value as real shock in the face of such facts every physician who treats hysteria will recall cases where the neurosis has indeed been provoked by 
violent traumatic impressions this observation is only in apparent contradiction with our knowledge already referred to of the unreality of traumatic events in childhood we know perfectly well that many persons suffer shocks in childhood or in adult life who nevertheless get no neurosis therefore the trauma has ceteris paribus no absolute etiological importance but owes its efficacy to the nature of the soil upon which it falls the predisposition for the trauma no neurosis will grow on an unprepared soil where no germ of neurosis is already existing the trauma will pass by without leaving any permanent and effective mark from this simple consideration it is pretty clear that to make it really effective the patient must meet the shock with a certain internal predisposition this internal predisposition is not to be understood as meaning that totally obscure hereditary predisposition of which we know so little but as a psychological development which reaches its apogee and its manifestation at the moment and even through the trauma i will show you first of all by a concrete case the nature of the trauma and its psychological predisposition a young lady suffered from severe hysteria after a sudden fright she had been attending a social gathering that evening and was on her way home at midnight accompanied by several acquaintances when a carriage came behind her at full speed every one else drew aside but she paralyzed by fright remained in the middle of the street and ran just in front of the horses the coachman cracked his whip cursed and swore without any result she ran down the whole length of the street which led to a bridge there her strength failed her and to escape the horse's feet she thought in her extreme despair of jumping into the water but was prevented in time by passers-by this very same lady happened to be present a little later on that bloody day the twenty-second of january in st petersburg when a street was cleared by soldiers volleys right and left of her she saw people dying or falling down badly wounded remaining perfectly calm and clear-minded she caught sight of a gate that gave her escape into another street these terrible moments did not agitate her either at the time or later on whence it must follow that the intensity of the trauma is of small pathogenic importance the special conditions form the essential factors here then we have the key by which we are able to unlock at least one of the ante-rooms to the understanding of predisposition we must next ask what were the special circumstances in this carriage scene the terror and apprehension began as soon as the lady heard the horse's footsteps it seemed to her for a moment as if these betokened some terrible fate portending her death or something dreadful then she lost consciousness the real causation is somehow connected with the horses the predisposition of the patient who acts thus wildly at such a commonplace occurrence could perhaps be found in the fact that horses had a special significance for her 
it might suffice for instance if she had been once concerned in some dangerous accident with horses this assumption does hold good here when she was seven years old she was once out on a carriage drive with the coachman the horses shied and approached the steep river bank at full speed the coachman jumped off his seat and shouted to her to do the same which she was barely able to do as she was frightened to death still she sprang down at the right moment whilst the horses and carriage were dashed down below it is unnecessary to prove that such an event must leave a lasting impression behind but still it does not offer any explanation for the exaggerated reaction to an inadequate stimulus up till now we only know that this later symptom had its prologue in childhood but the pathological side remains obscure to solve this enigma we require other experiences the amnesia which i will set forth fully later on shows clearly the disproportion between the so-called shock and the part played by fantasy in this case fantasy must predominate to an extraordinary extent to provoke such an effect the shock in itself was too insignificant we are at first inclined to explain this incident by the shock that took place in childhood but it seems to me with little success it is difficult to understand why the effect of this infantile trauma had remained latent so long and why it only now came to the surface the patient must surely have had opportunities enough during her lifetime of getting out of the way of a carriage going full speed the reminiscence of the danger to her life seems to be quite insufficiently effective the real danger in which she was at that one moment in st petersburg did not produce the slightest trace of neurosis despite her being predisposed by an impressive event in her childhood the whole of this traumatic event still lacks explanation from the point of view of the shock theory we are hopelessly in the dark you must excuse me if i return so persistently to the shock theory i consider this necessary as nowadays many people even those who regard us seriously still keep to this standpoint thus the opponents to psychoanalysis and those who never read psychoanalytic articles or do so quite superficially get the impression that in psychoanalysis the old shock theory is still in force the question arises what are we to understand by this predisposition through which an insignificant event produces such a pathological effect this is the question of chief significance and we shall find that the same question plays an important role in the theory of neurosis for we have to understand why apparently irrelevant events of the past are still producing such effects that they are able to interfere in an impish and capricious way with the normal reactions of actual life the sexual element in the trauma the early school of psychoanalysis and its later disciples did all they could to find the origin of later effects in the special kind of early traumatic events freud's research penetrated most deeply he was the first and it was he alone who discovered that a certain sexual element was connected with the shock it is just this sexual element which speaking generally we may consider as unconscious 
and it is to this that the traumatic effect is generally due the unconsciousness of sexuality in childhood seems to throw a light upon the problem of the persistent constellation of the primary traumatic event the true emotional meaning of the accident was all along hidden from the patient so that in consciousness this emotion was never brought into play the emotion never wore itself out it was never used up we might perhaps explain the effect in the following way this persistent constellation was a kind of suggestion a echeance for it is unconscious and the action occurs only at the stipulated moment it is hardly necessary to give detailed examples to prove that the true nature of sexual manifestations during infancy is not understood physicians know for instance how often a manifest masturbation persisting up to adult life especially in women is not understood as such it is therefore easy to realize that to a child the true nature of certain actions would be far less conscious and that is the reason why the real meaning of these events even in adult life is still hidden from our consciousness in some cases even the traumatic events are themselves forgotten either because their sexual meaning is quite unknown to the patient or because their sexual character is inacceptable being too painful it is what we call repressed as we have already mentioned freud's observation that the admixture of a sexual element with the shock is essential for any pathological effect leads on to the theory of the infantile sexual trauma this hypothesis may be thus expressed the pathogenic event is a sexual one this conception forces its way with difficulty the general opinion that children have no sexuality in early life made such an etiology inadmissible and at first prevented its acceptance the infantile sexual fantasy the change in the shock theory already referred to namely that in general the shock is not even real but is essentially a fantasy did not make things better on the contrary still worse since we are forced to the conclusion that we find in the infantile fantasy at least one positive sexual manifestation it is no longer some brutal accidental impression from the outside but a positive sexual manifestation created by the child itself and this very often with unmistakable clearness even real traumatic events of an outspoken sexual type do not always happen to a child quite without its cooperation but are not infrequently apparently prepared and brought about by the child itself abraham stated this proving his statement with evidence of the greatest interest and this in connection with many other experiences of the same kind makes it very probable that even really sexual scenes are frequently called forth and supported by the peculiar psychological state of the child's mind perfectly independently from psychoanalytic investigation medical criminology has discovered striking parallels to this psychoanalytic statement End of chapter one